That's Chuck Maroney. He's our conservative commentator. It's Dig Deep. We've also got Aaron Brown. So let's kind of move into that, go into the complexity about how we talk about these elections, how we talk about these issues, and how it affects how we think. It's interesting because there's been a lot of discussion really in between elections on the morality of polling. And it's it's not something that you hear a lot about, but like people who get into this have these deep discussions about, is polling even moral? They're not saying like, is it moral to ask someone who they're going to vote for? And, and right, But the polling actually shapes what people believe. It actually changes how people vote. This is why early polling is so important. If a candidate can put out that, you know, we're five points ahead or we're eight points ahead or what have you, all of a sudden people who are like, well, I I wasn't sure I was going to vote, but now, you know, it looks like a a lot of other people around me are going to vote for this person. So they must know something that I don't know. I'm going to go with that. There's a little bit of the wisdom of crowds. Think of yourself going into a room and you don't know anybody in the room at all. You don't know a single person. But all of a sudden it becomes time to get started and everybody looks towards a couple people in the room and you're like, whoa, they must be in charge. They must be the leader. They must be the, the thing is, is like once a couple people start looking, then everybody starts looking and they might not even be the leader. They might not even be the person, but it's just that like the momentum of the, of the group, the group dynamics start to create this impression. We do that to ourselves with polling. We do that to ourselves with elections. We start telling ourselves things like this person is ahead or this person's going to sweep or it's very close here or it's very close there. And that actually has this weird dynamic. It's, it's a complex feedback loop where it starts to affect what people think and how people vote. I swear that a big part of 2016, and if we went back and repeated it, and this is why I think you know the president has just rerunning that race if we just re-ran it, would be unlikely to win, and I think has a, a more of an uphill battle this time than, than maybe even thought from the beginning, is that a, a lot of the the meme or the, the notion that Hillary Clinton was going to win in a landslide, that she was essentially a shoe-in, that this really wasn't a contest, that Donald Trump was a joke of a candidate, and how could he ever win in the polls? If anything, are underestimating how strong of a candidate Hillary Clinton is, really played into her ultimate loss. There were a lot of people who I think voted for Trump thinking he would never win. But like, I'm not going to vote for Hillary Clinton, but I'll I'll vote for Trump. He's not going to win. It's not like I'm electing the president, so I don't have to worry about that. But I'm going to vote for the guy because I'm going to stick it to the, you know, the people who are telling me what's got to happen. I think it's very dangerous when we think of ourselves as independent actors who are wholly rational, who are not influenced by kind of the zeitgeist around us. I think when we can step back and realize that the zeitgeist is designed to influence us, the hour of pre-debate prep that Aaron listened to on ABC is not there because it provides any value at all to our understanding. It's solely to influence us in one way or the other. Now you're starting, I think, to become a more informed voter and a more just informed citizen in general. I'm reminded of a couple things. One is to kind of temper my political intake. I started a few years ago watching a lot more sports, not because I'm a huge sports guy, just because I I find the inane banter of inconsequential things just a little more comforting than the inane banter about things that actually affect people's lives. And so uh, I just find it more comforting. I'd rather worry about some basketball team I don't even care about than something else. I remember a, a year or so ago, there was a whole episode dedicated to how terrible the 
Lakers situation was, the Los Angeles Lakers situation, because they didn't make the playoffs and they had LeBron James, but he was hurt and it, and it didn't look like they'd ever win a game ever again. And the terrible situation with the ownership of the Lakers and Magic Johnson got shown the door and all this other stuff. Of course, the Lakers are probably about to win the NBA championship. They cruised, even with COVID, they cruised and crushed on either side of the COVID break. They're, they're, they're a really good team. They've, they have a lot of money. They went out and got some good players and put a really good team together. And the point is, they, I think back to that one episode that was dedicated to how terrible things were and how irrelevant that is now, how irrelevant that whole thought process was. Frankly, it's just showing how our politics has become like sports, has become like a competition where the end result doesn't matter, just winning or losing. And then you forget who won the Super Bowl last year. Who cares? You know, all these teams fight for these championships that only mean something to the old men sitting holding their Super Bowl rings right before they die. This is all that is. But the frustrating thing is that the politics is something that affects our lives and affects the long-term health of our country, our, our democracy, our, our economy, etc. And that we are, in fact, saddling our children and grandchildren with whatever our decisions are. It is uh, frustrating, it's like sports polling, who's going to win a game versus who won the game. Who's going to win the game is irrelevant. I might like to know about the teams and the players and their abilities, that matters. But polling before a game is irrelevant and stupid. It doesn't matter. And in, in a way, it's kind of gotten that way with our elections. Chuck mentioned the wisdom of the crowds. I was reminded of, I saw a TED talk, maybe you saw the same one, Chuck, where a speaker was talking about the wisdom of crowds and he had a whole series of boring things that I don't remember. But then he brought out a whole full-sized bull onto the stage. They had gotten into this arena somehow and the bull steps out on stage. A bull, like a cow. Like, like a, a cow, male... a bull. Okay, like a, yeah, like an yeah, enormous, sure. enormous I thought you said beast. bull. I was, I was getting your Iron Range accent. I thought you meant yeah. bull as in like a ceramic. Uh, oh, no, no, no. A like bull. B-U-L-L. -L, <laughs> a male Okay. A male steer yeah. with, the, with the horns yeah. and very heavy. And he goes, how heavy is this? How heavy is this animal? And of course, he's in a crowd of, you know, whoever goes to TED Talk, not experts in cattle or anything. Right. And, but everybody <laughs> had a little had a little board and they were able to punch in what the, how many pounds they thought this, this bull was. Of course, guesses were all over the place randomly. But the average of the crowd's guess was within like 2% of the actual weight of the animal. It was remarkable. And he said, because the larger sample you get, you get a kind of an averaging and people who might have a good eye for it, people who might already know get averaged in with people who way overestimate and way underestimate. And you get kind of close to reality. That's if you all just guess with what you know and what you guess. But when we start peering over the shoulder at everybody else's guess, we start becoming influenced not by what we think, but what the other people think. It's funny because I've, I've seen almost that exact same thing. And what happens is that when they allow people to change their votes, because you'll get the people who are way outliers and they're like, oh, I must be way wrong. And pretty soon that median starts to shift because people change their votes in response to what other people have voted. Like, I'm not real confident. I mean, I guessed 200 pounds, but, you know, the, yeah. someone said 3,000 and like more people are, so I'm way off. And they start to, to shift and change. Your, your actual like perception changes. Yeah. It kind of shows, though, that this wisdom of the crowds is very 
easy to influence at different stages of the process. Early on, you can, with the power of suggestion, suggest that one candidate can win and the other can't. Frankly, that's happened in the 8th District here in Minnesota. Quinn Nystrom can't win because Quinn Nystrom can't win because Quinn Nystrom just can't win. She's running against Pete Stauber. Who's Pete Stauber? He can't, you can't beat Pete Stauber. But in fact, we're four years separated from a Democrat holding that office. And in theory, in theory, a lot of those people are still out there. And there's other people who didn't vote or whatever in the previous elections. Perhaps Quinn Nystrom could win that election. But you can't find anybody to say that. And even I won't say it. I might vote for Quinn Nystrom, but I, I, I have a hard time saying she's going to win because of the conventional wisdom and the fact that that leads people who are marginal to say, well, hell, you may as well vote Stauber. You know, I know people like that. And Stauber's probably going to get a lot of those votes in this election from people who might vote for Biden, but probably will throw a vote over to Stauber. And so um, that's going to happen. And so probably she loses. But really, if you look at the numbers, talking about voter turnout, new voters, Chuck mentioned earlier. I know for a fact that the Republican strategy does hinge on new voters. I, I heard this from some of the many reporters who have called about the Iron Range, and, and they say, yeah, the Republican person said, yeah, we've got 200,000 new voters identified who are going to come out and vote for Trump that didn't vote in 2016. And maybe that's true. I don't know. It's a guess. I do know that the campaigns that say that they're turning out hundreds of thousands of new voters tended to lose because that's generally not possible. Even applied the most to the difficult of all strategies. Yeah, it's that's right. It's people who don't vote either can't vote. Uh, they're felons or they got problems or, you know, something, or they're just of the sort that you can't rely on them to vote or they choose not to vote. Well, I know a lot of people who don't vote on principle and that's more important to them than who wins the election. Point being, that's a tough strategy. But if you look at, that's Minnesota, maybe 200,000 votes could swing Minnesota, maybe, if it was kind of close. But then you look at the totals of non-voters in other states, and whether that's California, which is very blue, or Texas, which generally is perceived as very red, but Texas in particular has vast numbers of non-voters, way more than Minnesota as a percentage, obviously more in numbers, but as a percentage, there's way more non-voters in Texas, you, you could argue pretty comfortably that, yeah, Biden could win Texas if he turns out all these people who don't vote, who tend to be Hispanic, who tend to not be in the Republican camp. But they perhaps for years have perceived that there's no point in voting because, hell, the Republicans are just going to win anyway in Texas. And so why bother? But that group could be activated, maybe, but probably not. Probably Trump wins Texas and all of that. But but this is all part of this story, which is we operate on these assumptions and most of them aren't true. Demonstrably, they're just not true. There's the things that we believe, but then there's this next level of the things we believe that everyone believes. So when you step back and you look and you say, well, everybody knows mm -hmm. that Quinn Nystrom is not going to win the 8th District. Everybody knows that Donald Trump is gonna win the Iron Range. It's, it's not a thing that I necessarily believe, but it's a thing that I believe that everybody knows. Everybody, yeah. everybody else believes this. And the thing that's really powerful about things that you believe that everybody believes is that they tend to become self-reinforcing. They tend to become the things that like, okay, I might not believe that. Like I may be voting for Quinn Nystrom. I may be voting for Joe Biden, but I believe that 
everybody else is going to be doing this. And I believe that everybody else. And what you see, and I think the most demonstrable one in my life was the vote on marriage, you know, here in Minnesota. Everybody believed that everybody believed that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that's the way it would be. And when that ballot amendment came forward, that wasn't it a constitutional amendment we voted yeah. on back in mm-hmm. like 04 or 06 yeah, a, or something? A vote like that. to ban same sex marriage, a constitutional and amendment. It was pretty much guaranteed that that thing was going to pass and it was yeah. done. And everybody kind of believed that everybody believed this. But then when people actually went and voted, they voted largely what they believed. And I think we were all, particularly in outstate, maybe down in the metro, they weren't. But I think in outstate, even when we looked at the numbers, we were rather surprised to look, look around and go, oh, this is what my neighbors actually do believe, which is maybe slightly different than what people have been saying in public or what people have been willing to express. And you saw a, a very big change. A lot of candidates that are underdog candidates, you know, will tell people, go in and vote your conscience, go in and vote who you want. You know, don't listen to the zeitgeist going on out here. Polls. Don't listen to the right. polls. But the reality is, is that I think we should all be aware of the fact that what we believe everybody believes is not always true. And it's in fact, very often false. It's often a byproduct of just the cultural conversation around a thing, as opposed to what the thing actually is itself. So can Donald Trump win Minnesota? I think that we want to have that conversation today because it gets people tuning in, to the cable news networks, it gets campaigns coming here. If, if you think Trump can win Minnesota and you're in Ohio, then if you're on the fence and you're like, I'm gonna you know, sabotage this thing, it changes your, if you're like the place that can do it one way or the other, it's very different than, okay, Minnesota is the place, like if he can win Minnesota, there's a momentum here, like I'm gonna get on board over here or I'm going to go show up and stop it over here. It changes how you perceive things. I feel like it's very important for us all to recognize that we live in this culture. And it's really no different. You can go back and read Roman times and this is what they did. They just didn't have the internet and it wasn't instantaneous. It wasn't the way we do it, but it was just as scandalous and just as political and just as backstabbing. It's important for us to all recognize that we live in a culture and that culture affects how we hear things, how we perceive things, how we react to things. And it actually blinds us sometimes to uh, to reality. It is Dig Deep on KEXE, KBXE, continuing to dig into what, I don't, do you guys agree this is the most, they always say this is the most important election oh, of our lifetime. this is the most important election of our life. It's certainly the most important election of the last, you know, 18 months. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Well, this I, I I would I would argue that it is more important than most this one. So the last time we talked, things are changing so quickly, though most people knew that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not in the best of health. When she passed away, it made some changes on this election cycle or it became even more complex. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the importance of the Supreme Court and what's happening right now. It's interesting to note when we go back, and Aaron, you, you I think, are more of a historian than, than I am. I'm an armchair historian. But the original Supreme Court was three judges, right? I mean, three justices was the original layout of the Supreme Court, right? Judicial is a weak spot for me. Okay. <laughs> I just don't. It was John Jay was the first mm-hmm. su- Supreme Court justice, and I can't remember who the two associate ones were. I, I know that the organization has 
gone through changes in, in its exact role and that its exact role is not well prescribed in the constitution. It, it exists, but it, it, it has been subject to interpretation from the very beginning. If you go back and you look at the role of the Supreme Court in very early times, of the three co-equal branches of government, it was the least co-equal of the equal. That Congress was supposed to be, in a sense, the strongest of the equal branches the executive, the presider, being the one who would carry out the laws. And the Supreme Court was really supposed to be the ones who would step in and say, you went out of bounds there. You broke the concept. You, you, you're outside of what you're allowed to do and, and very limited. If you skip over a fascinating 150 years of American history and just jump to the New Deal, when the New Deal was really a pivotal time coming out of the 1920s and then the, then the Great Depression and this whole like progressive era of change and reform, all of a sudden now you had this moment of urgency with this idea that we needed to make all kinds of reforms with a system that is at its core, our, Democrat, our democratic republic system, our, our system of representative government is designed not to make wholesale, large scale, progressive change very quickly. It's, it's meant to do that very slowly. And that ran afoul of the Supreme Court. I feel like since that moment in time, when FDR packed the court, just added a whole bunch of justices to the court and said, but he you threatened know what? to. No, he did. He did actually appoint some, didn't he? He got like the, three or four on. Yeah, it was a process where he appointed, but it never actually came to fruition. Yeah. I thought he placed three on there, three or four. And then they came it, to a compromise where they said, Compromise happened first, but hey, you know, I don't know enough. Maybe you I, I feel like since this period of time, I think we expanded from five to nine. I will double check that when you, uh, yeah, I see you typing now, so you're gonna mm -hmm. free. But there was a compromise, and the compromise was basically we will stop doing this and we will also pass your bills and hear your stuff, and it will, you know, we'll make some decisions and we'll move on. The, um, the deal was made before. Before, the Before they actually vote. took, it was a compromise because he was about to pack the court. And they he was about to the, pack the court. The 1937 okay. Judicial Procedures Reform Bill gotcha. took care of that. The idea was we kind of changed to where now in an era of, and you could, you know, of course, push back on this, Aaron. We have been in an era of progressive government over the last hundred years, an era where there have been big plans to do not limited government, but let's expand this, let's do this at the federal level. Things that were not uh, envisioned in the original constitution as something that, you know, the federal government would do. We spent the last hundred years doing a lot of those things. Whether it was the right thing to do or not, I, I'm not as interested in. What it has done is it has made the Supreme Court much more central to not just being a okay, the 10th Amendment says if it's not in here, you can't do it, into this very strange group of people who now interpret in obscure ways, you know, we found in the Commerce Clause this ability to do the Clean Air Act, and we found in the parable over here this ability, this right to privacy, and we found over here this, this other thing because, you know, the federal government's now doing this. It's become a very politicized institution, one that is no longer... I think looked at as the referee of whether you're in bounds or out of bounds of the constitution, but one that has actually become a more active part of governing the country. And of course that raises the stakes in a huge way when you know you have now what is a third justice. It would have been a third justice for President Obama. That didn't work. 
out because of who held the Senate at the time. Now it will be a third justice for President Trump, and it completely changes the dynamic of this very important, very polarized, very active institution. Aaron, go ahead and push back on where you think I went out of bounds there. First of all, the last hundred years have not been exclusively progressive. We have had ebbs and flows in both judicial philosophy, but also political philosophy. The progressive era, which is the one I'm writing about, ended with World War One, and and you can argue that from World War One through Franklin Roosevelt, it was actually a very conservative philosophy. Let me agree with you in the sense that I think there have been ebbs and flows. The things where the Supreme Court has really made a difference have been the things like Obamacare. You know, like yeah. how are we going to rule on that? How are we going to rule Roe v. Wade? Is a big so, one. So yeah, so I'll agree with you that like, and I'm going to get there, but like the Roe v. Wade and Roberts' decision on Obamacare, or you want to go back and say, yeah, the the Clean Air Act, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, regulations being upheld by the Supreme Court when they were being sued over issues of unconstitutional whatever. That's all true, and I want to get to that, but I will say that there have been several moments in the history of the court going back at least into the 1800s where decisions by the court very easily say they were made for political reasons and that they certainly had political ramifications. Dred Scott, you know, the preservation of slavery in America. The Supreme Court could have ruled that African-Americans had equal rights as human beings. They could have been protected by the Constitution. Supreme Court for a long time refused to make that because they would have seen it as legislation, but they would make the provision that the slaves were property and, and in the law they were property. And so that was arguably a conservative mindset back in the 1800s, but it was very political and it was made in a political realm. You know, they were they looked at the lay of the land. They, they knew who appointed them. They knew what people thought out there. And they said, you know, we really are not the body to take a person and call them a human if the political system doesn't consider them that way. And so that is just one example. And you can go through and find later on as you get into the opposite side of that desegregation and the end of Jim Crow and the civil rights movement, you see some decisions being made that move in the other direction. Again, sometimes using some of the same case law, they're they're actually going the other way based on the political realms. The, the, the Supreme Court is like a slow-growing political body. If, if Congress is supposed, if the House in particular is supposed to be the fast-changing body with the two-year election cycles, and if the Senate is supposed to be slower with six years and the executives in between with four, and they're, they're always changing with the times, the judicial, with its lifetime appointments and its supposed limited powers is the slow interpretation of of the political and cultural whims of our nation. I feel like you just we just gave listeners a history of how a conservative views the court and how a progressive views the court. Because I view it as like reading the rules and are you inbounds and out of bounds and that shouldn't change over time. Maybe so. And, and I think you But I think the reality though is I think that's a lovely thought, Chuck. <laughs> I think that's a lovely thought, but that has not been the case. And in fact, uh, while I'm sure you would say that the liberal justices throughout history have made far more egregious <laughs> overreach than the conservatives, the fact is we can look in recent years and see many decisions that appear to have been made by conservative justices and they give conservative reasons, but then they rule differently on other cases for conservative reasons. And, it's, and I look particularly because it's affected my, my world, the unions, and the Janus ruling of late, which stripped a lot of protections, rulemaking ability for unions 
in how they count members and how they count fair share members and things that have affected union negotiations. Again, I'm not saying no, it's anyone very fair. Has, no, anyone has to believe one or the other. We've had the discussion about public sector unions before. No, but, it's very it's very fair to say yeah. that the court has, I think in particular, become more activist in recent mm-hmm. times, and that activism has extended across the political spectrum. It's not just yeah. been leftist activists, like Republicans like to talk about. It's been judicial activism from the right as well. It's funny because you look at the Supreme Court dockets and when the rulings come out, when we had five, four, five liberals and four conservatives, or now we've had five conservatives, sort of, and four liberals, Roberts being kind of the swing vote, doing some of the other, all these five, four rulings of late, which have been kind of controversial and kind of rare that a the Supreme Court has so consistently been 5-4, on so many big rulings. But every once in a while, like there were some rulings in the last cycle that were 7-2, a couple of the conservatives switched over. And there's been a few I saw where Justice Kagan, uh, the liberal, so-called liberal justice, went over with the conservatives on a particular issue on some judicial interpretation, you know. So I think they still like that. The justices like to do that where they can philosophically come together. Uh, They don't want this to be a partisan body, the Supreme Court of the United States. I don't, I think those justices all believe that in the judicial branch as an independent uh, part of our government that should not be influenced by politics. I almost brought this up in the last segment, but I'm going to bring it up now. I get the newsletter from my educators union, cover your ears, Chuck, in case you want to dismiss what I'm about to say. It was a survey not about politics or union politics. It was actually a survey of students about attitudes, uh, political attitudes and objectivity. How objective can can you be and how objective do you think others are when it comes to political issues? The funny thing was on the scales, only 6% felt that they were closed-minded when it came to their politics. 6% felt that they themselves were closed-minded and some were kind of neutral, but but they, of course, believed that they were open-minded completely. Students believed this. And then, then they went to their professors or teachers and thought that they were a little bit more biased and closed-minded than they were. And then they went to their community, place where they live, the place where they're from. And, of course, those people are pretty closed-minded. These are college students. There's a few open-minded ones, but mostly closed-minded. And then they went down to politicians and the other different groups. And they were all very closed-minded, couldn't change their mind. And were very partisan. What's funny is that that number 6% who believe that they themselves were open-minded. They're talking about students, but we may as well be talking about any human being because we believe we are independent. I get this sometimes, the most partisan people I know, and you get to talking and you say, hey, do you ever just think about it a different way? And like, I always think about it the other way. You know, <laughs> I am the most open-minded person there is. I can't believe you would accuse me of being partisan. And, and, you know, they while their partisan ball cap or their button on their shirt bobbles up and down as they talk, this is the thing that we do. We think we're objective and unbiased, but we are, in fact, biased. And it's almost an impossible task to think that we could find nine saintly individuals to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court without any political bias, without any bias towards the presidents that appointed them or the parties that ushered their their nomination through the Senate without any bias toward who they would like to see appointed on the court, a justice who agrees with them or a justice who agrees with those other cats across the way. Um, 
you know, and to think that they aren't thinking that way is, is kind of crazy. It's kind of like what we do with juries where they tell juries to disregard a comment that somebody made or something. Nope. You don't disregard the world that you live in. And Supreme Court justices, if anything, are thinking about their legacies and their their decisions holding up and being held as beacons and being taught in textbooks someday as great judicial decisions. And, and that means that they're going to be biased towards the politics of their time. You know, the victors write the history and they're thinking of where things are going. You could argue maybe that Roberts and his decisions uh, in the last t- term were where he refused to go back on um, marriage rights, uh, or I should say he refused to go back on gay rights in, in federal employment and things like that. Um, he was arguably switching what he saw a little bit based on... <laughs> a desire for the court to be seen of. It's yeah. seen as a, for, for John Roberts, it has seemed to be very important to him that the court be seen as, as neutral and arbiter as possible, right? He, right. He's, if, the, if Justice Roberts has done anything, it has been to try to make the Supreme Court seem as a neutral arbiter, as, as the least political kind of body it could be. I, I feel like that is the thing he wants. Yeah, that's what he wants. For. A lot of liberals don't trust him. They still think he, at the key moment, he's going to turn and go back to his roots. But I would argue that both Roberts and even Gorsuch sl- switched on a few. He, he went against the grain on a few rulings in the last docket. He's the first uh, justice that President Trump appointed, the one who got the seat that Merrick Garland was supposed to get and all that. Um, and, and you could argue that that, that is, and even, even the woman, um, uh, Barrett, who uh, has been appointed by President Trump um, to this current opening, um, while she is certainly going to go through the ringer of accusations of political bias, there are some hints in her background that while she's going to rule conservatively on a number of cases, um, we might she might surprise you. I mean, th- that's nice and all, but it's it's not the the reality is that I think a lot of people want the court to be saintly. But the problem is we are humans and what we want the Supreme Court to do, the president to do, the Congress to do, the media to do is to say our opinion in in their voices. And that's what we all want. And that's what we all can't get. And, and so that's the problem we've got right now is the Supreme Court is fallible. Its rulings are inconsistent because they're governed not by robots, but by humans. And in fact, how much power the judicial branch is supposed to have in, for instance, the the big hovering story these days is, for instance, let's say Trump gets his justice appointed and he has a quote unquote 6-3 conservative court. You can argue whether it's really 6-3 or 5-4 with Roberts or whatever. If you say it's a 6-3 conservative court and then Let's say there's an election. Let's say Joe Biden wins the election. Let's say it's not particularly close, but that Trump makes accusations that there's voter fraud. We know this because he's already doing it. And so let's say he brings a case. He says, uh, there's a big bag of ballots that got thrown in the river. That was the story he told during the debate in in Pennsylvania or something. And let's say uh, you have to invalidate uh, Pennsylvania's election results and let the Pennsylvania legislature, which I think is Republican, appoint uh, the electors for the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, let's say that's the case. That may be the case that comes up and moves to the Supreme Court. Outlandish, never been done before like that. Kind of crazy, especially if there's not real good evidence that anything like that happened or that it would have affected the results. But let's say that that comes to the Supreme Court. Uh, would we get a 6-3 pro-Trump ruling 
from the 6-3 conservative court? Or would enough conservative justices be able to make the to ascertain that the evidence is thin and that that even though I may be a, a judicial conservative and even though I may have voted for per- President Trump in my personal life, that this case has no merit? We believe, we hope, that justices make decisions that way. Have we reached a point where a guy like Kavanaugh, who in particular owes his seat to President Trump and the political process that rammed him through when there was a little bit of resistance. I know Chuck didn't like how that process turned out, but will a Kavanaugh who who believes he he has something that he owes to the president do something? Will this new justice who very directly owes her seat to the president rule in an objective way? You know, I, I hope so. I hope nothing bad happens at all, actually. Everything's just normal and we have a normal election and whatever the result is, people accept it. But, you know, this is what everybody's worried about. And I think when you start to question whether those justices are objective or not objective, that's when the judicial system has problems. Because if you don't trust it, if you can't trust the judicial system, you are in a banana republic. That's that's the line right there. You, you are no longer in a... Let me queue up our extra show then. I think the question that I have overriding all of this is, is can we function as a representative democracy without people of integrity? Because there are these instances and we have a, a very simple constitution. We have a couple hundred years of case law. There are an infinite number of instances that are going to be gray areas or areas outside the line or areas of dispute. And it seems to me, and I may have rose-colored glasses on, but it seems to me that at times in the past when this has happened, people with integrity have stepped forward and said, I'm going to put the system or, or, or the republic ahead of maybe a short-term gain. And I wonder if we're just, you know, are we in late-stage America where that's the breakdown of that, the accumulated kind of accretion of bad decisions is, is leaving us in a place where we can't? Or is this a unique period of time where we seem to have a, a dearth of integrity? Or am I seeing it through rose-colored glasses? Has everybody been mm-hmm. cutthroat in the past and lacked integrity and history has just <laughs> refined that, you know? So maybe we can chat about that a little bit in the extra. Yeah, I'd like that. There's a lot of good stories in history that point at that. That's Aaron Brown and Chuck Marone. This is Dig Deep. You can sign up for the podcast at kaxe.org.